What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Hi, this is Josh Marshall, and this is the Josh Marshall Podcast. Yesterday was uh, January, I'm sorry, it was uh, July 6th, and that is the six-month anniversary of the January 6th insurrection on Capitol Hill. And uh, a number of people made statements, you know, kind of, I'm not sure commemorate is the right word, but to, to note this date, uh, President Biden put out a statement saying, you know, the country has shown we've, you know, defeated the people who would, uh, you know, who attacked our democracy and so forth. But what got my attention was, I think it was on the 5th, on Monday, I found out something that President Trump, ex-President Trump, as I like to call him, and former is a little too dignified somehow, uh, had what he had said at this rally in Sarasota, Florida. Now, um, there's, you know, he, he just, he just did two of these rallies in the last week or so. And I think these are the last, he gave a speech, like he gave a speech at CPAC or something, but I think this is the first time, you know, the first rallies since he, he left the white house and in Sarasota, Florida, he, he may have also said something similar in Ohio, but he basically did two things. He basically asked, you know, Hey, why aren't the, why aren't the January 6th people, why haven't they been released from prison? or, you know, jail, whatever, you know, they're not all in jail, they're on bail, they're being charged. But, you know, why isn't that over? Why are my people still in trouble for that? And as is his want, you know, to him, it's like, oh, you know, the BLM people, nothing happened to them. Why are things happening to my people? Now, obviously, there's like a, a million things wrong with that. There's lots of people who are arrested and get, you know, charged with various things tied to, uh, the protests last year, I mean, there, you know, as we've talked about a million times, pretty, pretty much nonviolent, but obviously there were instances of looting and stuff like that. And again, it's not, we don't run our criminal justice system on a parody concept. Everybody's got to be punished the same amount. So he said that. And then he said he basically encouraged his audience to kind of rev them up to lynch the Capitol Police officer, pretty sure it was a Capitol Police officer, but some security person defending the Capitol on that day who shot Ashley Babbitt, uh, you know, kind of almost textbook excite, uh, incitement. You know, if that would have been anybody else, that person should have been strung up. And the key thing he mentioned, and this has been something that has been growing on the right uh, over the last few months they want to know the officer's name. They want to know who did it. And uh, it is pretty uncommon when when someone is shot by a police officer, that person, you know, police, you find out who it was. Uh, sometimes there's an investigation. Sometimes a police officer is is uh, charged with, with the crime. Uh, 
you know, we, we know this. So it, it is pretty uncommon not to publicize that, but we all know why that name has not been publicized because Trump supporters tend to kill people. But we, I mean, we know this and, and Trump tends to incite people to violence. So on both of these, on both of these fronts, he is back to basically trying to vindicate what happened on January 6th and create martyrs over it. That, that Ashley Babbitt was just, you know, kind of a citizen fighting the big lie. And, and, you know, one of, one of Trump's big supporters in the house has, has referred to it that she was executed. So this has all been going on in the background on the right, in the, in the sort of the ongoing advocacy incitement around what happened on January 6th. And particularly, again, this, this trying to make a martyr of this woman who was, who was shot during the, during the insurrection. And I, I did a post yesterday in which, you know, among other things, it's, it's a terribly sad thing that, that this woman died. Uh, we don't have the death penalty for doing stupid things for, you know, all but the most serious crimes. And yet it is uh, totally clear that the use of lethal force in that situation was justified. That was the last line of defense before the insurrectionists got to Congress, Nancy Pelosi, Mike Pence, the, the whole sort of, you know, order of succession to the presidency, lots of members of Congress. So, one of the things we're going to talk about today is, is, is you know, partly the anniversary of this, uh, you know, six-month uh, anniversary of this event, but also the way it is coming, I think it is coming back into, into the political moment. Uh, you know, Kate has uh, had been covering the back and forth over setting up a commission, and now we have a select committee. That has been formed now, so that's going to start. But it's also clear that President Trump wants to put this at the center of the 2022 campaign in terms of his role in the campaign. Because really, for him, everything is the big lie. Everything is the stolen election. And what happened on January 6th can't be separated from the big lie because that's what it was about. Those are the people trying to overturn the rigged election. And for Trump, as we know, you know, it's all the big lie, but it's also all vengeance, retribution. And so that is going to be the thing that he puts at the center. And I expect him to be, you know, to be saying more of this. So we're going to talk about that. We're also going to talk about Supreme Court, some Supreme Court stuff, uh, answer your questions. But before we get to that, let me remind you that Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee is the sponsor of the Josh Marshall Podcast. Grady's Cold Brew is here to help you cut through the heat this summer. Their famous New Orleans-style coffee stays fresh in your fridge, so you never have to wait in line, pay coffee shop prices, or leave your air conditioning. Concentrated and strong, Grady's tastes great however you take it. Black and bold, light and sweet, or even spiked with an adult four loco. And Grady's is the best cold brew value around. Order a six-pack of bean bags, and you get 72 servings of cold brew shipped directly to your door for only $45, and shipping is free. Are you ready to give it a swirl? Get 25% off your first order at Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. That's Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. So, Kate, what are we what are we talking about today on this episode of our podcast? 
You know, it was making me think during your intro, kind of the Ashley Babbitt veneration thing. You know, that started pretty much as soon as she was ID'd, like on January 6th. I remember uh, specifically that kind of the MAGA people took over her Wikipedia page. Um, that was kind of like an early thing they were doing to make the language, you know, martyr for the cause, stuff like that. And um, they put on it. I, I remember say say her name, which is a, a phrase that's mostly used to lift up black women who are, you know, are killed by police. Um, and I remember that was like a, a day after, you know, and then it, it's kind of funny. It took it took Trump a while to get on this train because you also had Paul Gosar, the um, representative from Arizona. He's like, you know, extremely far right, kind of gets in trouble sometimes for fraternizing with white supremacists openly kind of stuff. But he sits on the House Oversight Committee and they've had a lot of, you know, iterative hearings on January 6th. And I remembered and pulled up here, you know, I, I did a couple pieces about it, but that was the first place where I really saw this kind of, uh, especially the, the use of the word execution to describe what happened to her. And he has kind of also really zoomed in on emphasizing her physical attributes. You know, she was only 110 pounds, a small woman while her, her murder, you know, quote, was lying in wait kind of thing. Um, you know, all this attempt to hijack other language and specifically in, in this case, kind of the idea of violence against women, you know, to to emphasize. And then he'll say things about how she was draped in a flag. She was a veteran. She was a member of the military. Anyway, just all this attempt to kind of put her on this pedestal and to, like you're saying, make the Capitol police officers the real villains in this story, which is pretty alarming just based on the fact that, you know, he's putting a target on these people's backs, as is Trump, you know, and we saw that that uh, episode where someone drove a car into an officer, you know, shortly after January 6th. So it's like, we've already seen, it's not like January 6th, one and done, these people are not in danger anymore. And we have someone like Trump inciting the masses against these people as kind of cold-blooded killers, that seems potentially extremely dangerous. And and I think too, I, I, I'm not, I'm not going to get into any of the details, but, and I don't know if they're right, but my impression is that, that the people in that community have basically do know which officer it was. And they have, and again, I don't know if that is accurate and, and I'm not going to get into any of the details, but I, you know, those, those things tend to be, tend to be accurate. I mean, that's sort of a funny thing to say, but like, I think it is quite likely that, that they, that the person they have identified is the person. Um, uh, and, you know, that's, that's just really bad. And, uh, the whole, I mean, it's a funny thing because that sort of, that sort of uh, malevolent veneration is so offensive and you want to kind of push back against it so heavily. Again, there's this kind of, it's a tricky thing because you don't want to, you know, it, 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 you know, one wishes it had not come to that. One wishes that she had been injured, but, you know, survived. It, 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 is, it is really sad that that, that happened, that, that, that her life was lost in that, in that process. And yet, this idea of laying in wait, there's, there's a, poli a, a capital police officer behind, again, the last line 
and I, I don't want to get into the, you know the exact layout of of that part of the the Capitol and the Speaker's lobby. But again, that is the last kind of doorway until you get to you can get your hands physically on on the members of Congress, and that pretty sure it's a guy uh, is sitting there with his pistol drawn, saying, "Don't come any further. Don't come any further." And she's the one who who is 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 jumping through the upper you know it it's it doesn't get more clear cut um and uh you know this has a lot of um a lot of echoes of the stab in the back mythology from Germany in the aftermath of World War II I'm sorry World War 1 and what that was about um Basically, basically, the way that World War One ended in Germany was the military blew it. They blew it, and the country collapsed, and it was a disaster. Um, and people on the right, and then in and in the German military, needed a way to kind of shift the blame, and they came up with this story that the military was getting the job done. And then the government ministers, the new socialist government after the Kaiser abdicated, stabbed them in the back, you know, betrayed them and all these terrible things. And what you always have with that, you know, that has specific things tied to German history in that moment. But everybody is, is, is always trying to political movements, particularly political, but not only political movements on the right are trying to find some very emotionally charged point of grievance and victimization, righteous grievance and righteous victimization to spur the kinds of feelings of anger and desire for vengeance, which is very powerful in a political context. And again, through the 1920s and into the 1930s in Germany, this was sort of the thing that the the left, the elites, the Jews had betrayed Germany, had betrayed the army, and this was setting things right. Okay. And you can see, again, not exactly the same, but you can see these, these emotive similarities. This small white woman, just being a patriot, she's literally draped in a flag. You know, how can you get, how can you love America more than that? And she's shot and she's dead. And all she was trying to do was, was you know, stop the, the, the rigged election. That's if, if you, <laughs> it's, it's so transparent that it's, 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 you know, it's laid on pretty thick. But if you buy into that, you know, into, into those claims and into that moral framework, that gets you pretty charged up, Right. And that's clearly what they're what they're uh, what they're trying to do, and we kind of see this, you know, unfolding in in front of us. Yeah, and it's interesting because you know at these same hearings that I mentioned, this kind of overt sympathy for and siding with the insurrectionists, you know, it's gone beyond Goser. It's pretty much people who are pretty hard right. Um, but you know, Jody Heist from Georgia was kind of spent all his time questioning, asking Chris Ray, the FBI director, um, if insurrectionists are being held in solitary confinement, being very worried about kind of the conditions they're being kept in. Um, you had this one guy, Glenn Grothman from Wisconsin, who took a slightly different tack, but tried to paint the situation as, you know, we know some people, 
broke windows, were there to do destruction. But, you know, a lot of people just wandered in. They didn't know. How are they to know? They didn't know they broke a law, you know? And he was going on and on about how Wisconsinites are very concerned about this set of people who have been, you know, jailed when they were just just trying to tour the Capitol. You know, he did not mention, of course, that the Capitol had been closed for months for the COVID pandemic by this point. So nobody was kind of innocently touring it. But, you know, you you kind of had that angle. Um, you have Andy Biggs asking, are insurrectionists being held in jail without due process? And then, you know, of course, Gosar uh, leans in again with his with his lying in wait question, but it's it's all kind of offshoots of the same thing, this same you know very willingness of these granted you know pretty far right House Republicans to not even pretend that their sympathies don't lie with the insurrectionists or that they're speaking for the insurrectionists you know in this in this congressional hearing and that they are the victims, right. Fundamentally, I mean, obviously, everybody deserves due process. No one, you, you know, no one should be held. I mean, there's a whole no one should be held in solitary except for in, in some very exceptional cases. But I mean, it does happen in our system and there's no reason that they should be treated differently. But but as you say, they are the victims. And and it's an interesting dance because certainly, I mean, we 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 all know that there was that brief two or three day window when even like a lot of hard right people are like, oh man, that was fucked up. <laughs> you know, no more, you know, no, that was, you know, Trump's responsible. And, and then it kind of, then that shifted. There was even that, uh, I can't remember what vote it was for, but there was some, uh, Kevin McCarthy gave a little mini speech in the house. I believe it was actually, you know, in the well of the house, uh, where he basically said, Hey, Trump's responsible. And it, it may have been when he was when he was voting not to impeach, but even he was basically saying, you know, Trump bears responsibility. He did this. Maybe he shouldn't be impeached, but like he did this. Um, and still, for most Republicans in Congress, they'll basically say like, "Hey, we don't need an investigation. Uh, it was, it was, it was a mistake to impeach the president. He didn't, you know, he didn't know they were going to go so wild." But pretty much all of them, it has been the line, kind of like obviously people who broke the law, they need to be, they need to be prosecuted, right? It's you know, take it out of the political realm. We don't need a special committee. We don't need a commission. We don't need to impeach the president. But yeah, if someone kind of came in and beat up a cop, then throw the book at him. Great. And you can see that kind of moving away from that now. Um, and, and I think, you know, one of the signs of that was when the Democrats created this select committee a week ago, whenever that was, it, with, that, with that vote, Kevin McCarthy, I don't know if he said this, you know, um, said it in a public statement or if it was just reported that what he was telling the members of, of his caucus, that kind of like, if you agree to join this committee, I'm stripping you of all your committee assignments. And just for people who don't kind of follow Congress closely, for a member of Congress, that's that's kind of like the political death penalty. You're nothing if you don't have, if, if you're stripped of that. It's, it's almost... It, it, it is, it's like the nuclear option. It is a big deal. And it is sort of an example that, um, you know, they're kind of sidling up to, you know, we don't support it, but like, you know, boys will be boys. You know, 
their heart was in the right place. It got a little out of hand. You know, that kind of, <laughs> the way people talk about people who are their people, and uh, okay, it was too much. And you got to be held accountable. But let's, let's be honest, it was kind of, you know, their heart was in the right place. And you just see this evolution going and going. And now Trump is sort of anting up that that's his thing. And we know what happens when Trump, when Trump lays down the, the, the law, the line, Republicans end up lining up behind him. And it's interesting because I think it's in tandem with this, but from the beginning, there was an attempt to kind of pin the insurrection on other people, you know, and in the first days it was Antifa um, being like these. Didn't he actually, isn't some of the reporting that in that, in that infamous call between McCarthy and Trump, like contemporaneous during Mm -hmm. the insurrection that Trump even said then like, oh, it's it's Antifa. Yeah. That's right. Okay. And McCarthy yeah. was like, no, it's not. Call your people off. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, so that was kind of the beginning. And even that has mutated. You know, this was almost a, a conspiracy theory cycle that I kind of missed. But there was an attempt, uh, you know, kind of mid-June where the new conspiracy theory was it's the FBI. Oh, right. That organized this insurrection. And, you know, I was kind of reading up on it today to figure out where the roots of this stuff are, because, you know, it's kind of the most fascinating thing that you can see how something gets to Fox News and then from there, you know, into Republican lawmakers, into Trump and everything. But this particular story story started on Revolver News, which is a, a website started by a former Trump speechwriter who was fired because he went to a conference with white nationalists and then was rehired when Trump was kind of out the door so richly to join a commission that was in charge of uh, preserving Holocaust sites overseas. But putting this aside, so I that's think, where- I think this guy is actually Jewish. Okay. I mean, a great embarrassment for us Jews, but like, you know, <laughs> I, I, th- I think because this guy was also the one who was doing the sicknick sort of conspiracy theories. Mm, okay. That's where Carlson picked it up from him. In any case, well, I think he is. Well, yeah. same, same- website to Carlson Pipeline and operation here, because he writes this story where he basically pegs his argument that the insurrection was incited by undercover FBI agents due to the presence of the phrase unindicted co-conspirator in the charging documents against the insurrectionists. And, you know, basically what that means is it's either someone who helped out law enforcement, helped out the prosecution, so they're not going to be charged, or someone who the prosecutors just don't have enough on to charge. Or but, just choose, make, just decide for various reasons not to right. charge that person. Yeah, Exactly. But so whoever wrote this story, you know, it doesn't have a byline, which goes back to the stuff we've talked about before about this kind of right-wing media not, not standing by uh, journalistic standards and all those issues. But anyway, he just came to a conclusion that this this is a refer- this is referring to undercover FBI agents. That's what this phrase is referring to. Even though legal experts, you know, just come out and say that's not true. That's not how you refer to undercover people. And you know, there are examples of how these people are referred to in these kind of documents because you know it's not unheard of for the FBI to infiltrate militias yeah. or far right groups. But they usually call them something like you know hu- undercover human sources or something like that. So anyway, whoever wrote this, a speechwriter or someone who works at this site or whatever just decided that that is proof that there are, it was incited by the FBI. And, you know, within within days, it's on, Tucker Carlson is telling his millions of viewers, 
no ifs, ands, or buts about it, the FBI is the one who organized this. And then, you know, there go the dominoes. Now Marjorie Green is tweeting about it. Now Matt Gates is writing an open letter to Chris Ray demanding to know the role of the FBI in the insurrection. Um, you know, Louis Gohmert's reading the article on, on the House floor, entering it into the congressional record. And boom, now you got your newest way to not actually have to blame Trump or any of his acolytes for the insurrection. Now, has that has has that continued to bubble, you know, to kind of to to be live in the sort of the right wing media sphere, or is that kind of fallen by the wayside? I mean, and, and it is it is a it is a funny thing, and you see this dynamic continually because where you have this very high capacity for cognitive dissonance. Right. Where kind of like it's 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 both awesome and righteous and, you know, standing up for Trump. And it's also Antifa that did it It, or kind of like, you know, these people are all martyrs, but also it was all a setup by the FBI and they the FBI tricked us into doing the insurrection. I mean, again, it's sort of like (laughs) you would if if there's something you're really proud of, which they clearly are certainly the sort of the more kind of far, you know, far right people. You don't want to, you know, we don't want someone to kind of, you know, take credit for your good work. Right. Well, I mean, as we've seen, that's kind of been the thing that's landed all these people, you know, in jail, the ones who have been caught. The, the most common thing is they brag about it on social media or they brag about it in text to friends. I mean, Talk about making making these prosecutors' jobs easy, where they can just pull right, it up and right, be like, right, right. "He was bragging about it a lot." <laughs> now, let me ask you a question. My impression is that of the pe- that, that there are pretty few people who have been indicted who were just, you know, kind of take that Grothman guy's mm. argument that you know they didn't break anything. They just kind of, you know, kind of once once the once the 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 mob had broken in they were just kind of walked in and looked around a little uh, my is is that generally your impression i mean mm-hmm. pretty much all the indictments i've seen either it's people who were plotting in advance it's they assaulted a, a police officer they broke stuff um it, it's it's i mean it it, it almost can't be because i think what is it like maybe 400 people have been indicted or maybe 300 like in that ballpark but there was way more people there i mean no question right and and i guess i don't know what their um i don't know what their um prosecutorial strategy is uh, you know to me i would i would want to plea to something from everybody who went in the building um, but if you just went in the building and kind of looked around a little, I don't, you know, I'm not sure those people need to do, you know, to be in jail. I just think on principle, everybody, I mean, you know, you're not supposed to break the doors down and go into, and go into Capitol Hill. So I don't, it wouldn't make sense to me not to, to leave those people, you know, uh, free and clear, but I understand that it makes sense to make that distinction. There, there is a you know you want the people who are really who are who are violent, who are who are whatever. And again, my impression, at least, I mean, I have not seen one of these charging documents yet. Where like you know, Joe, uh, after the walls were after the doors were broken down, just kind of went in, and looked around, and then left. Right. <laughs> I haven't seen any like that. Right. Yeah, that's my impression as well. And also, Grothman's case is kind of taking even that to an extreme. He's not really talking about 
the guy who's behind the guy who broke down the door. He's talking about capital tourists, essentially, you know, who maybe they like Trump, but that's what they were there for. They were there for like a guided tour through the Capitol. And it's just... But as you say, there are no guided there tours There were now. no tours. Yeah. I mean, yeah. and it's... I'm sorry. I, I know we're trying to give people the benefit of the doubt, but I think when you watch someone smash in the windows of the, of the Capitol building and you follow them in, I'm pretty sure you know that's not allowed. So yeah. whether yeah. you think you're going to get away with it is a different matter. Well, it's also, I mean, you know, kind of one one analog to that is in the not common, but they did happen instances during the protest last year where there's looting. Someone, you know, kind of breaks down, you know, kind of you go to a Target and you bust down the windows and you go in and take stuff. You can't just because you didn't, you, you, you don't go in there with the people who broke down the windows and like, hey, I was just looking around. Like, they're like, no, it doesn't work that way. I mean, there's, you know, there's, there, I mean, I don't know exactly what, what it is, but even if you don't take something, you, you're not allowed to kind of like just participate in, in a breaking and entering, right. even if you didn't break the glass, which is, which is this kind of, you know, there's a lot of this special pleading that, um, that we're, that we're seeing. And, and, and again, I think Trump's, Trump putting that, at the center stage, I think is that is a big deal. And, and I think everything we know about him, everything he said at the, at, at that, um, at that rally in Sarasota, that is going to be the people who participated in the insurrection are going to be a centerpiece because to him, they are the victims. And they're the visible victims. They're the ones who were in jail. They're the ones who have been indicted for crimes. They're the ones who in, in Ashley Babbitt's case are dead. So that makes it, Trump is a really good storyteller and you can't have, uh, you can't tell a story without, you know, characters. Right. They're the characters. Yeah. And the thing that's kind of interesting to me about that is also that I'm sure is going to be a lot of the Democrats' plan going into midterms as well. You know, it's just kind of funny that the two focuses do kind of align. I mean, now, especially that we have the select committee set up in such a way that there's no deadline for the final report. I mean, you know that Democrats, while, you know, earnestly interested in getting to the root of the questions are also going to use it to their political benefit. It's both. It's both. Right. They, have, exactly. they have obvious political interests in not letting that go. Right. And in making sure that it is the center of you know media coverage of headlines while they're going into a midterm to ensure that voters remember which party was culpable for this attack that you right. know resulted in our seat of government being broken into this kind of humiliation on the on the international stage, police officers being killed and hurt, you know, that's in their political interest as well. And I can definitely see a situation where Republicans, you know, kind of much like the Georgia runoffs are, you know, beating themselves about the head because Trump won't stop talking about something that is not actually politically advantageous Unless when you move out of that kind of 30% of people who are Trump's like super hardcore mm -hmm, base. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I did a post about this this morning saying, you know, these are kind of their, they are on a common trajectory, you know, common timeline, and they're going to collide. And, you know, the other thing is, I don't know, 
the the commission at least the idea was that the commission might have a deadline basically mm-hmm. at the end of 2021 right um because republicans for obvious reasons and not you know you don't have to be for the insurrection to think like okay we, we don't want you doing the hearings like, you know, a week before the election. It was going to be done by 2021, the end of 2021. But in this case, the the they have a timeline. Even if it's not explicit, they are going to need to get this done b- before the end of 2022 because there's a good chance they're going to lose control of the House and then it's just going to be shut down. So they can't they can't be thinking like, oh, we're going to finish this up in 2024 or 2025. They have their timeline, and the timeline is basically identical to the election timeline. And so, and and it's 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 funny because you have this dynamic where the institutional Republican Party, to the extent that it still exists, they've got a game plan that they're pretty excited about. It's crime. It's critical race theory. It's basically a culture, you know. Largely culture war, but also big spending Democrats, and that will be particularly, uh, you know, viable if the economy is not good in in the second half of twenty twenty two. I think it probably will be pretty good, but if it's not, so they've got that thing, right? And they need to all say they love Trump and Trump is the best and all that kind of stuff. But they don't. They don't want to. They, they really don't. They 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 want to. They need to pledge fealty to the big lie, but they don't want to talk about it. That's not helpful. That's in the past, and it's divisive, and it's just not good. Um, but Trump, Trump wants to talk about it, and and the funny thing is, there is a little bit of an analog to this on the Democratic side, because you know the. Biden and the White House also think this is important, but fundamentally, they want to and need to be saying, hey, we fixed things. We broke the COVID pen, you know, we we broke the back of the pandemic. We rebuilt. We did this. We did that. So I'm not saying they want to like hide the insurrection or not talk about it ever. I think it will be. It will definitely be part of, but they don't want that to be the central thing. They they need to be saying a positive, forward-looking message about all the awesome stuff that that Joe Biden has done. What they are, you know, that's going to be their argument. It's going to be their argument twenty twenty two. It's going to be their argument twenty twenty four. So you have this funny thing where, um, in some ways, this the again the institutional party on the Republican side, the leadership of the party in the White House on the Democratic side, both have different kind of interests and in wanting to kind of look forward, right? But you've got the people in Congress, again, for really righteous reasons, in addition to the, you know, to the obvious political, um, perceived political advantage, they don't want to let this go. And, and that committee is going to be a pretty central, you know, central thing. And Trump, that's the whole thing. He doesn't want to move on from the, from the rigged election. That's his whole life at this point is his grievance. And again, a story needs characters and these in these insurrections are the characters. Yeah, the dynamics just really, really remind me of Georgia. Similar case where Trump couldn't stop talking about the stolen election. Warnock and Ossoff were pretty much doing typical Democrat bread and butter, you know, healthcare kind of stuff. And Republicans were like ripping their hair out, you know, stop talking about it. You're gonna lose us the Senate. And he couldn't and wouldn't because yeah. He's shown us just time and time again, you know, it's 
he's only self-interested. So whatever he's fixated on that and how, you know, of course he's going to be a starring player in that fixation. That's all he's going to talk about. And he doesn't have the discipline or honestly the loyalty to the party to put that aside, even when it's kind of an electoral stinker in the end. Yeah, it's funny. It's never been clear to me, and I don't think it is clear how much, I mean, obviously we don't know why Georgia, you know, Georgia was always going to be a a couple percentage point thing in both of those races. So it's impossible to know why it ended up the way it did. I am fairly skeptical that sowing doubt about the electoral system hurt Republicans as much as some people think. You know, the argument that like, oh my God, you're out there saying it's all rigged. So people aren't going to, sh- you know, your supporters aren't going to show up if you're telling them it's rigged. Why, why, you know, why be a chump and turn out and vote? If it's all rigged and your vote isn't going to matter, I think people have a pretty high capacity to hold, you know, contradictory things in their mind at the same time. But, but if you have different wings of the party at war with each other, that does not help. That definitely does not help. And, you know, he, uh, another thing Trump did a couple of days ago, it was actually after, um, after, uh, after those rallies that I was mentioning, he put out this statement. And it even for him, it was a pretty wise, like, you know, they came from miles around to, I mean, literally, I'm almost quoting this verbatim, like, there are tears in their eyes, their, their arms outstretched, uh, crying about the stolen election, you know, this kind of like, you know, this kind of like melodramatic faux biblical language and stuff um but in but it but in that he was you know he's talking about rhinos i think he name checked mitch mcconnell it it's it, it's basically that um all the people who aspire to or have power in the republican party aren't being as tough as he is and they are sissies basically and or they're or they're betraying Trump, and um, you know we we th- that that's not new from Trump. But again, that's that's not the way you want to go into any election. Kind of fighting against your own, you know, fighting against your own um, your own people. Right. Okay, let's do a quick SCOTUS corner before we move on to questions. Um, We wanted to mention this on the pod because last Thursday, the Supreme Court made a pretty important decision. um, And we just kind of wanted to to mention it. So the conservatives on the court upheld two restrictive voting laws out of Arizona, which there was kind of a range of reaction from experts on this. But on the most, you know, for democracy optimistic side, it was kind of like, this is bad, but the the law is not completely dead, ranging to this law has now been completely neutered. You know, the biggest kind of federal protection of voting rights for black people specifically has fallen. And then with a range of reactions in between. But, you know, it basically all comes down to the Voting Rights Act of 1965, which the conservatives on the court had already took a hatchet to in 2013. Um by throwing out the formula that was used to determine if states or localities had a history of racially discriminatory voting practices and thus had to get federal approval before putting new laws into place. So they threw out that formula. Congress has been unable to pass a new one, which, you know, 
really, really hurt the effectiveness of this law that was used um, to kind of police these discriminatory voting practices. And then the decision that came down last week, people are concerned that it's kind of making it even harder from that. Now it's even harder to bring these laws to account to prove that they're discriminatory to get them tossed out. So just kind of a further hobbling of this really important law. And then that decision kind of comes as like we've talked about on the show before, the background of Republican majority legislatures kind of spewing out every restrictive voter law they can possibly get passed. Just before we came on the air, Greg Abbott, the governor of Texas, announced that he was setting up a special session to basically muscle through a big voting law overhaul that Texas Democrats had strategically walked out of a couple months ago to prevent from passing. So we already kind of had this climate of vote urgency to shore up these these federal safeguards. Um, And then as we know, thanks to the filibuster, the For the People Act and the John Lewis Act, kind of the two prongs of the major federal voting legislation right now are, have no chance of passing because of the endurance of the legislative filibuster. So, So, yeah. uh, Yeah. That's That's that. (laughs) Yeah. And, you know, uh, I've been, I've been, you know, uh, keeping up with uh, the various people who are kind of you know experts on 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 voting rights and elections, and and you know there is this debate between whether is it you know is it a is it an unmitigated disaster or is it you know pretty bad but it could have been worse. You know, these are it's but it's it's clearly pretty bad, and I my sense is that the court has signaled that you know let them know when you want to strike down more stuff basically uh so it it's not it it it's not like clever lawyers are going to come up with a kind of like a new angle or something like that and the court is like oh that is a good argument okay you you now now that that will rethink it well clearly they just they just don't want uh any basically any voting rights protections. And now they have a 6-3 majority on the court. And that's kind of, and you know, one thing that, uh, as we know, John Roberts is now in some corners of the right kind of vilified is like, oh, might as well be a Democrat and blah, 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 blah. And it's true that he has sided with the uh, liberals on the court in a number of key cases. And the sense of this has always been that he is very protective of his own legacy, of the sort of uh, stature of the court and all this kind of stuff. But there's some issues that he has been, you know, less ideological on. And there's some that he's been very ideological on. And voting is one that he has been very ideological on. Um, That is, I'm sure there's some exceptions I'm not thinking of. But basically, when it comes to uh, rolling back voting protections. He's always there for that. And his, um, you know, the, the, the chief justice has all sorts of sway, but he doesn't, he doesn't need a lot of help at this point. You know, he's got a, he's got a crew, you know, raring to go. And it was, I believe that 2013 case with, um, about the voting rights act, I believe he wrote the majority opinion in that case. And there's a fairly notorious, um, 
passage in that opinion justifying uh, basically getting rid of what's called preclearance, where basically if, if your if your state or locality has a history of discrimination, you got to run new stuff by the DOJ first before you can you know before before you can do it. He had a line in there where he basically said, "Look, 1965, there was a lot of racism, but we're kind of done with that now. We don't have racism anymore." So the reason for this, I mean, that was that was a lot of the argument. Basically, that the the um, the harm that was being mitigated, i.e., racism and attacks on the voting rights of African Americans, that that doesn't exist anymore. So you don't need these, you know, these uh, interferences in in states, uh, you know, getting getting to run their own elections. So he's bad on this issue. So we should not expect. Uh, anything to change. And that is a reason why uh, I think we're going to have to come back if and when it is possible to, uh, you know, uh, adding people to the Supreme Court. Simple as that. Yeah. Okay. Let's move to questions now. Um, Our first one is from Neil, who is basically talking about that he doesn't he's not just seeing Trump flags for 2020 being left out seemingly permanently post-election, but even those that have been converted to Trump 2024. Um, he said he hasn't seen much writing about this phenomenon, but he finds it very troubling and sees parallels to the 1930s and this kind of consistent never taking them down, uh, you know, flags everywhere kind of phenomenon. Yeah, I mean, I you know, I the '30s analog is a very loaded analog, and I don't know if it is you know like that in a significant sense, but it is definitely very different, and is something Neil I have thought a lot about myself. And there's you know, there's so many different angles to come at it from, but you know, I Democrats really loved Obama, but I don't remember any like Obama flags. I mean, I guess the closest was that you know you had that. Um, forget the artist's name, that sort of lithograph, that, you know, kind of uh, multicolored lithograph of Obama. Um, but there were no flags. And you, d- I mean, there certainly people had, you know, there was, uh, you know, bumper stickers and stuff like that for, you know, Obama, Biden and, and whatever. But there's no flags or these kind of things where you take the American flag and you put like Trump's face on it and stuff. And that is, they didn't have that for Obama. They didn't have it for Bush. They didn't have it for Reagan. That's just, that's, that whole thing is weird. That kind of, um, now it, it is true that on both sides of the aisle, we have that, you know, we have things like, oh, red, red America and blue America. That kind of vocabulary is pretty new and it's tied to polarization, the ways that politics is kind of seeped. So, so part of it is a broad thing, but yeah, it's different and it's weird. And, um, it's part of the Trump personality cult. It doesn't have to, you know, it doesn't have to be like the 1930s to say it is, that is something that is, that is very bad in a, in a, in a civic democracy. And yeah, I, I haven't, um, I at least have not seen a lot of discussion of it per se. Some of it is just so commonplace. Like we all know this. It's, con- you know, it's, it's sort of the air around us. But even even other stuff you see a lot like these, you know, Trump rallies where you have these um, either flags or posters with Trump, you know, kind of bodybuilder Trump, you know, with the big ripped muscles and everything. And I mean, th- they're... 
that does have a history in a lot of fascist or sort of, you know, quasi-fascist movements, the kind of the the uh, you know kind of valorization of the hypermasculinity of the leader. Um, Benito Mussolini was in it was into this a lot. I mean, f- weirdly, Hitler that wasn't a thing with Hitler, uh, but M- Mussolini would go out with his like shirt off, right? And he was he was also a big guy, but he was kind of uh, <sighs> he could pull it off a little more, right? But I mean. Similar kind of stuff. He, the He Man. Um, yeah, it's it it is it it's totally new, and it's 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 weird. It's weird. Yeah, it's also kind of fascinating to me because disrespecting the flag, as in the American flag, is such like a, a beloved culture war skirmish on the right. You know, we've seen this pretty recently because um, the Olympic trials are starting up, and uh, you know, there is an athlete who prominently uh, turned her back to the flag. And, you know, she's she's an activist and everything. And, you know, Fox News went wild. They covered it ad nauseum kind of thing. Whereas at the same time, like you say, there's there is not a reluctance to kind of doctor the American flag by these kind of same people. It's also um, the blue line flags, exactly, you know, we see a yeah. lot. Yeah. Yeah. For, yeah. Um, to, to show your support of the police. And there, there's also this kind of thing where, uh, you know, we went camping a recent weekend kind of into a rural area of Virginia and it was just Trump flags everywhere, but it would be Trump flag, American flag, Confederate flag, like those things together <laughs> right, all over right, the right. place, yeah, you know? Yeah. And it's, I was kind of reading up uh, before the podcast and I was reading this really interesting article about the tug of war over the American flag and all these, especially older Democrats quoted in this article saying, I took down my flag during the Trump presidency because they didn't want to be confused as a Trump supporter mm-hmm. because that's such an aggressive kind of MAGA thing to do to shroud yourself in the stars and stripes and to say, we are patriots, like to really kind of latch on to the idea of patriotism, even while they're storming the Capitol, say we're yeah. the patriots, yeah. this is the revolution. Like that was such a thing they like to do at that time to compare it to this is a new 1776 kind of thing. So I don't know the the kind well, of- that- yeah, I mean that that is there it a few times recently I have seen I don't know if it's at police stations or but but public facilities uh you know local not federal but where they have the American flag and also the blue line flag and uh, you know I I am not friendly to the politics behind the blue flag stuff, but whatever people have, you know, people have opinions. But I, when I saw that, like in a in a public building, I was like, that's kind of fucked up. Mm-hmm. Like that is not. I mean, a that is like way too political for something in a public, you know, in a, in a to be over a a public building. But also, kind of to me, it is kind of desecrating the flag. Like uh, that, uh, you know, it, and and uh, it's fun. I mean, I. I think what this shows is, is that on the right, this is not, you know, desecrating the flag per se. It is challenging their vision of rightist hyper-patriotism and sort of cultural traditionalism. Yeah. And I I do think 
the other piece of this is that a lot of times in old elections, you take down your signs when your person loses. You know, it's not really a really, point of really fast. That, that, right. that, that's actually one of the things that I've always found a little tawdry about American politics. That like once you lose, man, you are gone. Like we don't want to hear about you again. Right. It's not like in other countries. Well, oh, lost. We're going to run. You know, can't wait for the next election. Get another shot. Like when like Dukakis lost, man, he was like. No Democrat ever wanted to talk with him again, right? <laughs> exactly. It was kind of the same with John Kerry. Yeah, it's like you're ushered off the stage, you're ripping out your lawn signs, you're peeling off your bumper stickers. But, you know, this also, I mean, it feeds into the big lie, right? These people, at least a good amount of them truly don't believe or at least some of them are pretending they don't believe that Trump lost. So mm-hmm. it's, it's just not the same embarrassment. He's not a loser. The system was rigged. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, right. what's the next... Last question. question. Um, This is from Milford, who says, why does every report about voter fraud say, quote, no evidence of widespread voter fraud? Um, From everything I read, voter fraud is very rare, if non-existent. Why have the widespread caveat in everything that is written? Is it to give journalists and academics some wiggle room? Uh, that is basically what it is. But I think the, 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 the reason is this, that voter fraud organized voter fraud where multiple people get together and and arrange things to change the result of an election is virtually non-existent in the United States. And uh, we can't say it's totally non-existent because there was actually a plot to do it down in North Carolina a couple of years ago. And an election result was, was, was thrown out. Uh, what you do have, though, is, you know, we see examples of it. Oh, this person's parent died, but not that long ago. So they voted in their name or this person voted in one place they live and also in another kind of, you know, just bad acting by individual people still very rare, but, um, but it does happen. And, but those things don't matter because they are infinitesimally small. Um, they largely cancel each other out. And so when people, people, journalists, whoever is the speaker, they want to find a way to communicate the basic truth that this is not an issue, but they don't want to say non-existent. It never happens because then someone's going to say, oh, but this lady, this, she was a felon and she voted in this and that and the other. But I agree with you that they need a better way to, to do it because it sounds like they're saying, yeah, there's voter fraud, but there's not that much. Right. <laughs> that it kind of like not widespread, like kind of like half the votes weren't fraudulent, only 5%. Um, but that is why. And uh, I think in in many cases, it is done in a, you know, done in good faith, done trying to address these different things and, and, and trying not to set so high a standard that that uh, vote fraud types can get one case and say, oh, I thought you said there was no voter fraud. Right. But it does, it does end up being misleading. And I, and I do think, um, I do think, uh, y- you know, MSM type journalists and those kind of people need a way to describe it because it is misleading. But I think in terms of why that is, that's generally why. Yeah, I agree with that. And I would just add that, especially, you know, outlets on the right and Trump particularly has just shown a propensity to cling on to these stories and to amplify them, you know, to the high heavens, even when said story focuses on 
two ballots or, you know, that story out of Pennsylvania that was about nine provisional ballots found in the dumpster. I mean, they ran on that for months. And besides it not actually being a purposeful, nefarious thing, it's nine ballots, you know, we're, we're a country of 300 million. Yeah. I mean, you can't, it, it is, it is uh, surprising just how efficiently the system runs. And I'm not talking about fraud here. I'm just talking about like, you know, losing ballots or kind of, you know, they get misplaced or something right. like that. But that is, that is the, uh, that's the reason. Yeah. Okay. So reminder, uh, send us your questions and send us your podcast theme song submissions, which have been great to talk at talkingpointsmemo.com. And remember, the Josh Marshall podcast is brought to you by Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee. You can get 25% off your first order at Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. That is Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. All right. All right. See you next week. Later. Later.